Uh, my name is Jesse, if we've not met yet, and uh, it's good to see you all uh, this morning. Um, I, uh, I should tell you, I've moved a lot in my life. There was probably uh, something like the first 20 years of my life, I never lived in one place more than two years. I moved all over the place, but I've never lived outside of Texas. I was born in Texas. I was actually born in Nederland at Mid-Jeff Hospital, which it's not a hospital anymore, it's a something else, but nobody's born there anymore. Uh, but that's where I was born. I am, I am native Texan. One thing that uh, I'm really, I don't know if I'm proud of or uh, I'm just aware of. It's something that Texans do all the time is that every like a uh, year, two, three, uh, we threaten to go and make our own country, right? We're just like, hey, it's time. Something's going wrong. And we're like, we're Texans. We're out. We're going to secede from the union or Texans might say succeed because, you know, we're, we're winners and we're Texans, but we want to, we want to go and we're going to make our own country. And so I, I've been doing some research uh, this week. I don't know if you know how hard it is to make a country. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever tried to make a country recently. It turns out it happens all the time. People make countries all the time. It's just a matter of not, you know, if, if they're recognized by other countries. And so if you want, next week, you can just like make a website and declare a country and that's more or less solves it. You're a country. You just need like the UN to agree so you end up on the globe or something like that. I want to I uh, bring to your awareness a few countries that m- you may or may not know. Some countries you may want to visit uh, in the future, countries that people have made up, that they exist. They have websites and constitutions and governments. Uh, I'll start with the free country of Liberland. Liberland, I didn't name it. I don't know. I think it's kind of a play on the word liberty and land. Uh, this country is located between the borders of Serbia and Croatia. So here's what happened after World War II. There were some border disputes and treaties being signed. And so they redrew the borders. One of the countries said, yeah, we accept the new border. And the other country said, nah, I'm not going to acknowledge that. And so they, they kept their old border. And that left a 2.7 square mile sliver of land that neither country claimed. It's just like marshlands and swamps and, and whatever. And in 2015, some guy saw that on a map. Hey, nobody's claiming this country. I'm going to claim that country. And so he moves in. He says, this is now the free republic of Liberland. Let's start a country. 2.7 square miles. His government consists right now of seven positions, of which he's the president. But the country itself has zero population because Croatia says, look, we're not going to play this game. Uh, You're just not allowed in our country. So the only way to get there is to either go through Croatia or Serbia. And so right now... Now, if you want to know, like maybe watch your newspapers, uh, the president of Liberland is attempting to be arrested by Croatia so that in the court documents, they have to acknowledge that he's the president of Liberland and now he thinks he can like found his country. That's pretty good. I like that. Uh, If you're interested in being a citizen of Liberland, just go on the website. You can apply for citizenship. You can read the constitution. You can even donate some funds to Liberland. Uh, That's kind of a recent one, 2015. Uh, There's another empire. Uh, It's the Empire of Atlantium. Now, that's not Atlantis. Uh, It's Atlantium. It's in South Wales, Australia. It's pretty old. It kind of started in the 60s or 70s. It's about 186 acres, which isn't isn't small, but as far as countries go, that's like the size of some of your like ranches out in the country somewhere, you know, like 186 acres. Uh, he says on his website, uh, this is a quote, Atlantium recognizes that the days of nation states founded on fixed geographical locations are numbered. Well, I bet you do with 186 acres, right? And so he's saying, look, we're going to be a country. We own these 186 acres, but you can be a citizen from wherever you are. It's not, it's not a fixed location. You can, you can be a citizen of Atlantium. He currently has 3,000 citizens, and his government has dozens of positions. He's the emperor. Uh, he, he's called uh, George II, which is really funny to me because he founded the country, and he went with the second. 
I don't know who George I is. I don't know what he was thinking. Uh, but if you're interested in maybe running for a government office, he's looking for 15 you know, politicians. You can be like the secretary of you know, whatever you want. Make it up uh, because we're all just you know, playing by whatever rules we come up with. Let's, let's bring it closer to home. There are actually multiple micronations, they call them, inside the United States right now. There's one in, uh, outside of Dayton, Nevada. It's called the Republic of Malasia. This guy, uh, after uh, Vietnam, he founds the Republic of Malaysia. It is right now about 1.28 acres. That's not a lot of land. Uh, if you drove into church, which everybody into this room did, you came down the driveway and there's like a patch of grass on the left and the right. His entire country is the size of the patch of grass on the left. That's 1.28 acres. That's, that's all this guy has. Uh, he has his own time zone. It's in between the seventh and eighth hours. He just has 21 extra minutes, which would be really confusing. I love his economy though. He has coins that he's minted. He has paper money that he's minted. But the currency is based on the relative value of Pillsbury cookie dough. That's not a joke. It's on the website. So we have the gold standard. Our currency is supposed to be based on the value of gold. His currency is based on the cookie dough you bought at Walmart for your family gathering recently. And apparently he has like a whole vault of cookie dough based on the amount of money that he has minted. Uh, it was started in 1977, and uh, his website says that they are currently at war with East Germany, which is hilarious for so many reasons. Um, one of the main reasons why it's really hilarious is that East Germany ceased being a country in 1990 because of a treaty sign. So if you ask, like, hey, where are the East Germans? There, there aren't any, but they're still at war with them. And his website clarifies it saying that the treaty didn't acknowledge that East Germany had some land in Cuba. And since Cuba wasn't mentioned, he just says that they're at war with Cuba. So we have a country in the United States that is 1.28 acres with a dictator uh, at war with, with Cuba. That's, that's good. And, and the best part about it is um, because he's in the United States, he still pays property taxes to the county. Uh, I didn't write the name of the county, uh, but he writes on the checks for an eight. <laughs> so he, he wants, he just like, he's not going to play the game. He's like, I don't want you to steal my property, but I'm going to send you some foreign aid at the exact same amount you happen to say I owe you in property taxes. That's good. That's good. Last one. This one's the most ridiculous one. Uh, it's the Republic of Zakistan. Zakistan, uh, founded by some guy. Anybody want to take a guess at his name? Yeah, his name is Zach, uh, and he started the country of Zakistan. Uh, it's in Utah in the desert. Um, there's not a lot there. I did just want to read this one thing because you can order a passport if you want to be a citizen of Zakistan. Uh, and so I, I, it's $50 plus shipping. So if you want it, it looks real. It looks like my passport, but it has like his logo and everything on it. I just want to read you this warning that he has on his website. <clears throat> Zakistan currently does not have diplomatic relations with any other countries. There are zero countries that offer visa-free entry with a Zakistan passport. If you try to cross international borders, it is, quote, in caps, very likely that you will be sent back or even detained. The Zakistan State Department cannot guarantee any aid in the event of confiscation of the passport, detention, or incarceration. If you use that passport, you go into prison, and they're like, we don't know you. I don't know. He just, just ordered this off of a website. Uh, there is a port of entry. Now, remember, this is all desert. The port of entry is literally a toll booth in the middle of nowhere. There's no road. It's just like a bar. It's the port of entry. So if you go to Zakistan, you have to have your passport. You have to walk through that. They have a victory arch, which looks like uh, most of the victory arches you see like in France or whatever. And it says on his website that this is the tallest and largest structure ever built in Zakistan. Victory arch is a monument to an unspecified victory. 
I don't know who they went to war with. Maybe they joined homeboy with the East Germans. I don't know. Uh, but uh, there you go. And then the highest natural location is called Mount Insurmountable uh, in Zakistan, and it is five feet tall. It has a flag, uh, and uh, there's a giant robot statue. I don't know why that's there, but he has that. That's it, bizarre. You know, the idea of building a country, starting a kingdom, whatever, we, we talk about succeeding. It's trickier than it's messier. Have you ever thought, when did America become a country? So I'm going to throw it out there. Let's see, let's see just shout uh, a date if you have one. When did America become a country? What do you think? There's a lot of, uh, I've heard, I heard 4th of July comes up a lot. It's easy to say like 4th of July is when we became the United States, like, huh, we're free. Uh, it's actually messier than that. Uh, I want to go through a little bit of history, if, if I don't bore you too much, because I'm, I'm wanting to read, uh, we're going to read something about uh, the Sermon on the Mount here in a minute, and, and Jesus is establishing a kingdom, and we want to think it's like clean and easy to form, but the actual formation of countries, even legitimate countries like the good old US of A, uh, was really messy. July 4th, 1776, we declare independence, written document, boom, we are independent, but we haven't gone to war yet. Uh, it took a while uh, before anybody agreed that we are an independent country. In fact, France, they, they, they kind of secretly told us that they would back us, but they didn't do it publicly because they wanted to wait until we won a battle. And so we won a battle. And so late fall 1777, more than a year later, France publicly acknowledges, hey, that's the United States of America. That's a different country. Don't mess with them. Uh, France then uh, recognizes some USA ambassadors February 6th, 1778. That's two years uh, after the Declaration of Independence. Independence. So we sent some ambassadors to the Netherlands shortly after that. It'd be good, like if we did, if we had more countries than France, right? So we sent an ambassador to the Netherlands. Great Britain caught them en route, captured them, arrested them. So in 1779, that ambassador that we sent with a treaty uh, was captured and imprisoned in Great Britain. Uh, several years later, 1782, it was four years later, um, we sent John Adams, one of our former presidents, uh, to be an ambassador in the Netherlands. Here's what he said about it. Uh, apparently, making a government's really tough. He, he said, quote, uh, that his work there was a tiresome feat of innumerable vexations. I'm going to tell somebody that one day. You're going to like ask me for a report or something I was like this is like, kids. You go to school and you have that, that really hard paper to do with your teacher. And you're like, this is a tiresome paper with innumerable vexations. Uh, it wasn't until June 21st that Spain, another country recognized this. Um, and then General Cornwallis in October 19th, 1781, uh, he surrenders. So we're kind of a country then, right? We're no longer at war anyway. They surrendered. We're finished. But it's not done yet. Like, there are still countries who are not agreeing that we're yet a country. Um, shortly after that, in April 3rd, 1783, Sweden uh, declares, hey, we recognize you as a country. Now, that's important because it's the first country to recognize America as a country that wasn't at war with Great Britain. So, like, you know, Spain had a reason to, like, poke Great Britain, Britain a little bit. Spain had a reason. Uh, you know, uh, France had a reason to poke. But now you have Sweden. It's like, yeah, we're at peace with everybody, and we think that you are a country. And January 14th, 1784, is when we sign what's called the Treaty of Paris. Uh, this is the treaty of peace between us, Great Britain, France, and a couple of other people, and we almost missed the deadline. We had six months, guys, 
America had six months to like, hey, just sign all your names. And we had to get representatives from all 13 states, all 13 colonies to sign it. And we were down by one and we had like a week left to get it in. And homeboy gets off of his sick bed. He's in the hospital and he makes his way to, I don't know, wherever they went, Virginia. And he, he gets the signature in at the very last minute. We almost missed it. We almost missed being a country by just a few weeks based on being signatures. And then April 6, 1789, George Washington was elected president. 1789, that is, uh, let's see here, uh, real quick, quick math, uh, just a hair under 13 years after we declare independence, we get our first president. Now, when I was taught government, uh, maybe, maybe this is the educator, maybe I wasn't paying attention, I'll give my teachers the benefit of the doubt. When I was taught, we, we declared independence, we went to war, George Washington, yay, he's our president, and we just move on. But the reality is, um, the rest of the world didn't acknowledge that we were a country for, for years and years. Uh, and it took us 13 years before we even had our first president. We want to believe that when, when Jesus talks about his kingdom, we want to believe that like, there's this moment and poof, it's done. But it turns out it's really messier than, than that. It's, it's messy like all government making is messy. And what I want to do is I want to look at the beginnings of Jesus declaring his kingdom. The kingdom that we say that we find peace and we find hope in. Those of us who call ourselves Christians, we say we are a part of. I want to look at the beginnings of that. That, that maybe that Declaration of Independence, if you will, uh, and spend a few weeks unpacking it. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to look at it, Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew 5. I'm going to start in Matthew 4 because I want to set it up a little bit. And I'm going to be honest with you, uh, I'm going to geek out for a few weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to spend uh, at least two months on the Sermon on the Mount. It's only three chapters long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and, and it's more or less... Jesus, when he announces his kingdom, it is, the, it is the founding document of that declaration. Much like the Declaration of Independence is the founding document of our country. And the question is, is like, well, when did America become a country? Was it at the Declaration of Independence or was it at that one treaty or was it at the surrender? And the answer is it really depends on who you ask. If you ask Americans, it was Declaration of Independence. We just had to fight to prove it to everybody else. And the same uh, is likely to be true here. Uh, Matthew, the author of Matthew, as you might expect, I don't know, that's maybe a big Bible study, like, wow. Uh, but no, I think everybody knew, uh, is one of the disciples of Jesus and he spends the, the first several chapters of Matthew trying to convince us that Jesus is the expected and chosen king that God is going to send. King, specifically king. Uh, that he's of the line of David. That's why all those genealogies are right at the beginning. That he goes to the, to the city of David, King David. That's, that's why we have the Christmas story with the wise men. It's all in Matthew. Um, that when he shows up uh, just a chapter before and he sees John the Baptist, that he's baptized. And John the Baptist is like, whoa, you're, I'm baptizing all these people, but you're something different. And Jesus says, yeah, I know, but, but this, is, this is to fulfill all the righteousness. Uh, and, then, and then Jesus calls his first disciples uh, in chapter four. And, and what we see is that the king is getting his crowd together and the king in declaring his kingdom, because, you know, kings have to have kingdoms, unlike Zach over here at Republic of Zakistan, uh, Jesus has a very unique kingdom that he's going to declare. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 4, verse 23, if you want to follow along in your Bibles. It says, uh, and he, Jesus, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, there's that word, and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So he's in Galilee, that's the northern area, and he's just going from synagogue to synagogue saying, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is really like. 
I'm the, I'm the king, and I'm going to tell you what the king is, is like. I'm going to tell you what the kingdom is like. I'm going to tell you the rules. So he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he's healing diseases and affliction among the people. It says in verse 24, so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. I bet they did. I bet they did. You have some guy claiming to know something about God, and he's healing folks. And so they start bringing more folks that wouldn't even be nearby. And they're like getting them from Syria, and we're going to see some other places. Brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Everybody that they brought, they healed him. Uh, He healed them, I mean. Verse 25, and great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Now, this is, this is really interesting because Jesus, up to this point, uh, the most public thing that's happened was his own baptism. He hasn't done a lot of the healings yet as far as Matthew's story is concerned. And as he's going around in Galilee, uh, he's declaring the kingdom of God, what, what God is really like and, and what God is about to do. But the people that he attracts are the lowest class of people. Now, if, if I'm going to start a kingdom and I'm going to march off into another land, I'm going to go get the nobles and the politicians, I'm going to get rich people, I'm going to get powerful people, because what we're about to do needs that kind of power. But he gets the sick, the paralytics, the epileptics. He gets the Syrians. He gets those from the Decapolis. Decapolis was a group of 10 cities on the east side of the Jordan. If you're Jewish and you're in Jerusalem, uh, they are the problem. Uh, Syria reminds you of when the Assyrians came in and captured you. If you live in Jerusalem, Syria is the problem. In fact, if you uh, grew up in the time of Jesus right now, and you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of explaining to you what they think God is like, and you happen to be a leper, paralytic, epileptic, you believe that you are the problem. Because the way that they understood theology and the way that they understood what God was like, they believed that your circumstances are evidence of what God thought about you. And so if you go through a really hard season, it's because you didn't pray enough, or you didn't offer the right sacrifice, or you didn't do it right, and God's just really mad at you. If your kid becomes epileptic and he's having seizures every third day, the, there's not a lot of mercy uh, from the religious elite because they say, well, I mean, God must be mad at you or your family or your grandfather. Y'all go figure that out. Get out of here. Lepers had to announce that they're unclean and they had to just scream unclean, unclean. They couldn't come around and they're pushed to the outside. And as far as those in Jerusalem are concerned, the reason why Rome has conquered us is because we've got all these sinners around. You know who the sinners are. You can tell they're the sick ones, they're the poor ones, they're the broken ones. They're the ones who they walk around with shame and guilt because they know that they're wrong. And they're the reason why God is mad at us. But when Jesus shows up, who goes to Jesus? The people who had no access to God before, they'd been taught their entire lives, I'm the problem. I'm the reason God doesn't like my country. I'm the reason my family doesn't get along. I'm the reason why nothing makes sense. And these are the very people that gravitate towards Jesus. Crowds from Syria are coming down from the Decapolis, bringing all their sick people to Jesus, and he heals them. So starting in chapter 5, verse 1, we get into the Sermon on the Mount. And if you have a red letter Bible, um, all the red text is Jesus' words. And so for the next three chapters, Jesus talks. Um, He spent this amount of paragraph right here talking about who all he healed in that moment, and the rest trying to explain what God is really like. Because it turns out, um, and we've covered this before uh, when we were looking at John, um, Jesus is far less interested in just doing his healing tricks and far more interested in telling us what God is really like and what, what God's kingdom is really like. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, uh, Jesus seeing the crowds. 
He is now, he has all this fame and all these people and these crowds are full of people. I want you to imagine, if you could, um, who's in the crowd. I think 80, 90% of the people are those Syrians, those from the Decapolis, the sick people who were healed, those who were, I didn't have any hope before I met Jesus. They're the broken ones. They are the ones who I am the problem. They believe that. That's that's probably 90% of the crowd. And it said earlier that some people from Jerusalem and Judea came up. And I think it's fair to say that there's some religious people, uh, some some Sadducees and Pharisees and scribes and other people who are, they're more or less okay, uh, but they want to go hear what Jesus is like. And so he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he has this, uh, at this point, he has four disciples, and these are people who are following him, and the crowds are all there, and he begins talking. Uh, and something we'll see, uh, it's not going to come up on the screen. Before I read it, I want to show you one thing. Uh, it's at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew says this uh, at the very end. It says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, everything that he said in those three chapters, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So what we're about to read is something, they've never heard someone talk like this before. Jesus Jesus like lays down a line of hope they have never experienced before. You have probably heard most of the Sermon on the Mount, so it'd be easy for you to be like, oh, I I know what he's about to say. But for them, it's the first time they heard someone talk to them this way. Verse two, it says, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first, the first line out of here is, blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to tell you, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you about the kingdom of heaven. And the first one thing I want to say is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, because you're going to, this is yours. This is, this is for you. Now he has, uh, I think it's nine uh, blessings. Sometimes it's called Beatitudes. And it'd be helpful if we're like, well, what does blessed mean? Blessed can mean a lot. Does that mean that they get money? No, that's, that's not what it means. Um, to be blessed in a kingdom means that the king has favor on you. To, to be blessed in a, in a nation, like if, if, if you were blessed by America, you received uh, like some help. You have voting rights. You have, you have participation in America. You have participation in the government. You were blessed in, uh, as an American by the government of America. And some of you are rolling your eyes like, not me. Well, that's because we're wanting to succeed as a nation. That's another thing. Um, when Jesus says blessed, he's saying, you know, you may believe that you came to the station in life because you're cursed, you may believe that you're the reason that this nation has a problem, but I'm telling you right now, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, someone who's, who's poor in spirit, they, they look inside themselves and they see, I have nothing to offer. Like when it comes to me and God, um, he's rich and I'm broken. Uh, I, have, I, have, I have nothing of value compared to him. I'm so poor in spirit. The opposite of this would be like the Pharisees and Sadducees who say, based on my heritage, based on I'm a son of Abraham, based on my sacrifices before, I bring this wealth to God. And we know, you know, most of us who have read scriptures, uh, we, we see like God, God kind of frowns on the proud stuff, you know, he's not a big fan. But those of us, if you're in this room and you're like, you know what, I barely made it in here and I feel, I feel like my spirit has nothing more to give. I'm, you're, you're what Jesus calls poor in spirit. And he says, I've got good news for you, you're blessed. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's keep going. Verse four, he says, blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't make any sense at all. Blessed are those who mourn. You know, a lot of us, you know, we, we have things to mourn. We have, we have, this world is full of things to grieve and problems. 
But when we bring our problems to our friends, they like, you know, they, they shut us down. They push us away. They don't, they don't want to hear from you. And so we, we've learned, we put on a good face. We put on a strong face. How are things going? Oh, everything's great. Everything's fine. I don't, I have, I, I blessed and highly favored, like the super Christian would say. And all the while, like deep down, the heart is broken and we're mourning. And Jesus says, it's okay. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. The kingdom of God, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, he's beginning to proclaim, is that those of us who find a reason to mourn, and not to, not to be a Debbie Downer, but this, this world is built in such a way, we're all going to mourn. Um, and Jesus says, I understand. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's comfort for those who mourn in the kingdom. Let's keep going. Verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. Now, if I'm building a nation, if I'm going to start a kingdom, I need some like muscle. You know what I'm saying? I need people who can like come and, you know, like somebody tries to take my kingdom back from me, I'm going to push them away. That's not meek people. You know, I need, I need strong people. Meek is, is someone who like they, they just quietly do life. Uh, meek, um, I, I said before when we were looking at James and the word meek came up, I, I heard someone tell me that it's like a horse training term, that you have a wild stallion and you tame him. The wild stallion will kill you, will kick you, will jump on you. It's stronger than you. But then when you tame the wild stallion and it's, it kind of learns to like just kind of go along to get along, uh, it doesn't get weaker. It's just as strong as it was. It's just strength under control. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, when, when Jesus said this, um, someone else is already inheriting the earth. Let's remember who's, who's there. Uh, the Roman Empire is actively, not out of meekness, but out of raw, brutal strength, going around and taking things, taking nations and forcing them to, I mean, the people that Jesus is talking to, every one of them are part of the Roman Empire, whether they like it or not. And there are those uh, that would say, like the Pharisees would say, like, no, we, we need some strength. We need some people to like rise up. That's what like Judas and the other zealot was all about. They're like, we're going to rise up. We're going we're gonna to do something to stop this. And Jesus says, no, to inherit the earth, uh, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who in peace kind of walk. They can still have their strength, but they don't have to flex every time a soldier comes around. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, the, the thing about being hungry, uh, I don't know about you, I'm, I'm starting to get hungry, I didn't eat breakfast. Um, the, reason, the reason I'm getting hungry is because I've gone a period of time without some food. I've gone a period of time without, you know, sustenance. That's the reason why you're, like right now, just because I said that, you're like, oh, you know what? And my tummy growled right when he said that. It's like magic. Uh, it's because same thing for you. you. You've gone a period of time without sustenance. You, you only hunger and thirst when there's a lack of abundance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have a group of people that they're in, they're in a position in life that they, they have no example around them of what righteousness looks like. All they have is all the religious people pointing their finger at them saying, you're the reason we're in this mess. Get your act together, would you please? Um, but blessed are those who, you know what? I, I have that hunger. I want to see righteousness. I want to see good things from God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. There's something in the kingdom of, of God, the, the, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, that is going to satisfy that hunger that we find in ourselves, that hunger that I just, I want things to be right. I'm tired, I'm tired of the weak person getting taken advantage of over and over and over. 
I'm tired of uh, every time uh, my kid goes to school, I have to deal with the stories of the bullies. And I'm tired of all of this thing where the strong person seems to get their way, even though they do it evilly. I'm tired of that. I want something better. I hunger and thirst for the better thing. I hunger and thirst for righteousness. And Jesus says, my kingdom is going to satisfy that. We're going to be satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I like, I like the, the quid pro quo of that. You give some mercy, you get some mercy. The problem with being merciful is that it involves refusing to give something to someone that they have earned. You have earned me punching you in the eye. You were really mean to me and you've earned it. But I'm going to be merciful. And Jesus says, you know what? My citizens, the people in my kingdom, those who, who kind of follow me, those who extend mercy to folks, those who are merciful, you're going to receive mercy. Jesus will double up on that later. He'll say, uh, like in the uh, Lord's Prayer, you may know, he says, Lord, forgive us our trespasses as what? As we forgive those who trespass against us, right? For those, like, it, it, Jesus is saying the way my kingdom is going to begin working is it the same measure we extend mercy, the Lord returns mercy back to us. But it involves, to, to be merciful, by the way, it involves like someone being wrong, objectively wrong, not just your opinion of being wrong. It involves like a world of, with a little bit of brokenness in it. It involves me letting you down. It involves someone saying something out of turn. That's like, I'm so sorry, that was really rude. I didn't mean to say it that way. That you have to experience that sting for mercy to be applied. And so Jesus isn't like proclaiming a kingdom where, and it's rainbows and sunshine all the time. He's proclaiming a kingdom of a better way. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. I like, I like that, pure in heart. There's another word that we would use for the pure in heart. Uh, it's something along the lines of being naive. Someone who doesn't know really how the world works. You know those people that like, they just kind of trot through life in kind of a, a simple way of thinking of interactions. And you think, man, they're just going to get hurt. They're just going to get burned. They're just, they're going to get let down, right? Jesus says, man, you know what? Those people are blessed. They're pure in heart. They're going to see, they're going to, uh, they're going to see God. The simple, the naive, those of us who just like believe the best in people, uh, we walk around and you know what we see? We see good people. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those of us who see the worst in people, you know what we see? We see bad people. <laughs> like we see proof. Uh, and Jesus says, you know what? It, there's, a, there's a value. There's, there's a value to being just pure in heart. Again, remember who he's talking to. Now, it's, it's helpful that this crowd, we see ourselves in this crowd. This crowd has a reason to hate everybody else in the crowd. You have the Syrians hanging out with those in Jerusalem, hanging out with those from the Decapolis. They all don't trust each other. They're all out to hurt each other, uh, if you just look at it on face value. But those in the crowd who were like, you know what? I get it. You're just from a different country, and it's just the way you were raised. Yeah, it's okay. Like, we'll, just, we'll figure it out together. The pure in heart. They're going to see God, and they're going to see uh, God in uh, the activities of people. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are, uh, excuse me, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I like that. Peacemakers. It's not peacekeepers. Uh, there, there's a distinction, and they could have gone around and could have worded it in a way of like someone who, like, everything's going great, 
and I'm just going to make sure it continues to go great. That's a peacekeeper. Peacemaker is someone who is kind of standing back, and it's like a third party, and they see conflict over there, and they run and go like, hey, listen, let's, let's work this out. Well, peacemaker, uh, they're blessed, and they're going to be called sons of God. You have a conflict in your life. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's in a marriage where it's two spouses that are just kind of at odds with each other. And you have this friend, this third party who's objective, and they just come in and in grace and mercy just explains to you, like, here's, here's his point of view. Here's her point of view. It's, it's okay. Let's, let's. They're trying to make peace between you. Um, you, as a marriage, are thankful for that third party, right? That's why we have marriage counselors. That's why they exist. You were thankful for, for that because they show up where there is conflict and there is no, like, necessary resolution between the two, um, and they make peace. Blessed are those, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, uh, despite what the circumstances are, are constantly fighting for what's right, constantly fighting for what God would want. If I lived in that time, it'd be really easy for, like, you know, the, the Syrian to be sitting in the chair right there. And, you know, I remember what he did to my great-granddaddy back in that one war or whatever. And uh, I'm just going to sit back, right? And when nobody's looking, I, don't, I'm, I make sure, like, I'm not going to be found guilty. I just kick the chair out from under him. <laughs> oh, man, gravity stinks. You're going to learn about gravity later. Isaac Newton will discover that. Uh, you know, the, these people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake refuse to, like, get even, these people refuse to, to offer others what's coming to them. These people are those who are like, you know, I think, I think that there's a better way. These are the people who choose uh, God in a situation when other things are even easier to choose. And even the easier things, nobody would have judged them for it. You know, like I said earlier, like punching the guy in the eye, nobody would have judged me uh, for that. Maybe that one guy would. But uh, the, this person is blessed who are persecuted for righteousness sake. They're they're living, they're making the hard choices and they're choosing righteousness over the other easier options. And Jesus says that when you're persecuted for that, you're blessed and yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, what I'm declaring right now is for you and people like you and people who are willing to choose my way over the easier way, over the satisfying way. Because some of us feel like revenge would be more satisfying. And the last blessed is this, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and we're like, no, no, that doesn't sound blessed at all. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, hey, you guys know um, to do this, to be my follower, you're going to have a lot of people be jerks to you, they're going to curse you, they're going to revile you. And I want you to know that in my kingdom, you're blessed. I mean, think about it. Think about how they treated the prophets. You know, they buried Jeremiah with his head sticking out of the dirt because he was following God. And we're like, yay, Jeremiah was an awesome prophet. He's like, blessed are you uh, who are persecuted and reviled uh, for, for my name's sake. When Jesus works his, his opening sentence, um, he could have gone so many different routes. He could have used his fame up to this point to just declare, I'm here to beat the devil, and uh, I'm going to go down the cross, uh, and we're, we're going to do this. He's already been tempted by the devil. He beat that temptation that happened in chapter 3. 
Um, he could have used his fame at this point to say, okay, I've got everybody. I've got the Syrians. I've got the Decapolins. I don't know if that's what they're called. Uh, I've got those in Galilee. I've got all the rednecks, right? Because these are all country folk. That's what Galilee was. They're all like, you, you send a Galilean out into the wild, they're going to kill the bear and skin it and bring it home. Like they know how to take care of themselves. I've got all these people and I've got enough of them. Let's rise up and take on Rome right now. Let's do it. Let's, let's get it done. And that wouldn't have been foreign for them. If Jesus had chosen to do that, there were already some false messiahs who had come before him that did that exact thing, what I just described, and the Romans killed them. Jesus could have gone the fame route, he could have gone the power route, he could have played to the most powerful people in the room, and yet here's what he does. Here's what the God of the universe does when he's establishing his kingdom. He shows up, he starts healing folks, and the more he heals, the more broken people show up. The more broken people show up, the more problems that are present. The more he does this, the weaker and weaker the group gets because they're bringing all of their weaknesses and all of their afflictions and all of their problems. And then he begins by saying, I'm going to tell you why you're blessed in my nation. I'm going to tell you why, why there's a better hope. There's, a, there's, there's me. And I'm not trying to build something that's already been built. I'm not trying to, to build something based on strength. I'm trying to build something based on what God is really like. Here's, here's why that's good news for us. Because so many of us, when we look in the mirror, we think, I'm, I'm not going to make it. We think, I don't measure up. We think of that one mistake, that one problem that just seems to disqualify us from any activity around us. We think, of, we think of what that one person says or that whole group of people says about us, and we internalize that, and we say, I'm the reason that these problems are here. That's what we say. That's what they said. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm establishing a kingdom where I overcome your weaknesses. He's going to address the Pharisees and the Sadducees later. That'll be in a couple of weeks. We'll look at that. Those who show up and think, I've got something to offer God. I'm going to impress God with how awesome I am. That's not most of us. Most of us struggle with who we are. And here, here's, here's the truth. I'm far more interested in who God says that I am than who I feel like I am and who you say that I am. And what we see is that when, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, he points to the poor in spirit. He points to those who are mourning. He points to those who are meek, who are not exercising their strength and just kind of getting through life. He's pointing to those who are hungry and thirsty for something better, hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's pointing for those who are constantly showing mercy to other people who don't deserve it, but they keep showing it. He's pointing to those who are pure in heart or who we would call naive or simple or don't understand how the world really works. He points to them. And then he points to the peacemakers who are constantly going in at conflicts and saying, let me help, you know, I'm going to fix this. He points to them. He points to those who are persecuted for righteousness sakes. And he points to those who will one day be persecuted because they raise their hand and say, I'm a follower of Jesus. He points to all of them and say, you're going to be the kingdom. I'm establishing the kingdom and I'm starting with you and we're going to do big things. You're all in this room because Jesus started a kingdom based on the weakest category of person in that crowd instead of the strongest. Let me, let me close with a, a couple of thoughts. The kingdom of Jesus, um, the, 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 this, this, this whole Beatitudes, uh, if we call them citizens, if you will, the first citizens were those that felt the absolute lowest in the community. You go through a low spot in your life, um, a lot of times, the, even, even the, the church uh, will, will kind of push folks away who are hurting or broken. Uh, that's not us. That's not what we're going to do here at Carpenter's Way. Uh, and that's not what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God says, come, all who are broken, all who feel low, all who feel that they are the problem child, come. We're going to, we're going to do something. We're going to establish this. 
The first citizens were those that felt the lowest in the community. Jesus announces a kingdom full of these, quote, you know, citizens based on what God says about them and not on how they feel. None of these people felt like they were worth much. He's, he's got these four disciples. They were just redneck fishermen in Galilee. He's got crowds from Syria who feel like they're the problem. He's got crowds from the Decapolis, who's the forgotten frontier of the Roman Empire that like they get taxed by the Romans, but nobody takes care of them. No, nobody sends like you know government officials to go make sure the roads are right or anything. Everybody that he's talking to is just forgotten people. And he says, I'm going to tell you something about what God is really like. Uh, and he establishes your worth, not you. You, you. you don't have that much power over yourself. And the third is this that in Jesus' kingdom, there is room for those who bring nothing to the table. We, we sang a song uh, right before I got on stage, All the Poor and Powerless. All of us in this room who feel like, I don't have enough strength, I don't have enough power, I don't have enough internal value, and Jesus says, I declare your value, and I am your strength. This kingdom is going to be based on my strength, and you get to be a part of it. You are not the problem You are not the reason the Roman government is coming down on Judea and and Galilee. You are not the reason your family is in whatever condition it is. There there is sin in this world and there's brokenness, but Jesus overcomes that and he's the king. He's alive, he's well, and the kingdom is intact. And we, as Christians, as followers, um, we live in a dual citizenship. We have citizenship in this world with its rules and its taxes and its problems and its expectations, but we have a citizenship with the king and in the kingdom. And in that is freedom and there's hope because our king is powerful and he's sovereign. When Jesus finishes uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and we will finish it in a few weeks, um, it, it, gets, it gets recorded in Matthew and it is no mystery why people just like, what kind of king is this? What kind of Jesus is this? They hang on every word he says, because everything he says is opposite of the pain that the world is is dishing out. When we finish, uh, and as we work through it, what, what I hope will happen is that we will start to see ourselves as citizens of this kingdom. We'll treat others as if we belong to this kingdom, because this is where we find our hope. This is where we find our identity. Uh, let me pray. And then uh, we will watch the, the queue together. Father, um, this morning, just, just as we're beginning, uh, Sermon on the Mount, exploring the kingdom, looking at what you've accomplished, Father, we, we thank you first that no matter what our standing is, no matter what our um, feelings are in the moment, Lord, you, you have declared us yours. Um, you have, have, have set yourself as king and as power. And Lord, we, we just bring you all, all of our brokenness. We bring you all of our pain. We bring you all of it and just ask God that you would, that you would forgive us for things that, that we've not laid down at your feet yet. Lord, that you would, you would give us peace in our conflicts. Lord, that you would restore uh, families. That you'd restore our community. That you'd restore just kind of working relationships with, with each other. Um, Lord, the, the brokenness that this world uh, dishes out is, is, is heavy, and it hurts us in, in so many different and various ways. Lord, help us to live as citizens of your kingdom, seeking restoration um, where, where it was not otherwise possible. Lord, I pray for Carpenter's Way as, uh, as we ponder, as we look uh, at your word, Lord, that we, would, that we would be drawn closer to you, and we would be drawn closer to, 
to the king that has restored us uh, despite us not having anything to bring to the table. And so we love you and pray this in his name. Amen.